Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. Hi, how are you? How's it going? How are you in these mean streets of 2022? Our guest today is Frankie Gaffney returning to the podcast, an Irish, an Irish author, novelist, teacher, and poet. And we are talking about the great novel Ulysses by James Joyce, one of the most truly esoteric and occult works ever written. Of course, not directly about anything, you know, occult or anything like that, although there's actually quite a lot in there. If you are not aware of Ulysses, let me just paraphrase briefly from the Wikipedia entry. Ulysses is a modernist novel by Irish writer James Joyce. It is considered one of the most important works of modernist literature and has been called a demonstration and summation of the entire movement. According to Declan Kibbard, before Joyce, no writer of fiction had so foregrounded the process of thinking. Ulysses chronicles the appointments and encounters of the itinerant Leopold Bloom in Dublin in the course of an ordinary day. Ulysses is the Latinized name of Odysseus, the hero of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, and the novel establishes a series of parallels between the poem and the novel with structural correspondences between the characters and experiences of Bloom and Odysseus. Molly Bloom and Penelope, and Stephen Dedalus and Telemachus, in addition to events and themes of the early 20th century context of modernism, Dublin, and Ireland's relationship to Britain. The novel is highly elusive and also imitates the styles of different periods of English literature. So, this is a monumentally important book for a lot of reasons. It is possibly the ultimate example of the novel. It is very much the first book, I think, to really deeply delve into and depict what consciousness itself is like. And of course, it was the subject of a ton of obscenity trials in, well, one one very famous obscenity trial in the United States in 1921, which somewhat similarly, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch would also have to face in 1960. So, it's a monumental obviously book, but also I would say landmark in the development of at least our depiction of human consciousness and what we hold important about our lives and its influence cannot be overstated. And when I was digging into it for this podcast, because it is now over a hundred years old, I discovered that there's actually quite a lot of directly occult stuff in the book, which I don't remember from reading it the first time. But lo and behold, the occult is like whack-a-mole. Whenever you think it's gone forever, it pops up again. You can't get away from it. So, we're going to talk about that in this podcast. It's a great show. It's a little bit off the beaten track for this podcast, but I think you will really really like it. And in the meantime, magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn meditation there. You can learn magic there. You can supercharge your life and attain everything from a spiritual to material and even financial success. Sound like a lot of hyperbole? It's not. It's real. All you have to do is go to the site and check out our students' testimonials. I realized today I have now spent eight years of my life working every single day on some iteration of magic.me and at this point, 25 years plus of studying and teaching magic. That's a long time. Time really goes by uh, pretty fast. I could have been a doctor or a lawyer 
but here I am teaching magic and podcasting. So take advantage of my mistakes and turn them into your successes. Yes, I probably could have been at least a senator by now, but instead, here I am serving you, and I'm actually quite happy about it. So check it out, magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, and turn what took me 25 years to learn in terms of magic, manifestation, meditation, and completely mastering your life into the learning of a few days or weeks so that you can get supercharged and go from zero to 60 and start getting results right now. All right, here's Frankie and enjoy the show. How's the weather in Ireland right now in the summer? It's caution. Uncharacteristically, it's uh, it's beautiful, yeah. It's uh, sunny, blazing sun outside, no clouds, no rain. You do a bit, a bit of fucking rain, keep the dust down, you know? Yeah, it's raining here for the first time in like a long time. It's, it's been on like 112 degrees here, so that's, that's, that's great. All right, let's talk about James Joyce. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. Okay. Thank you again for being back on. I'm, I've been uh, wanting to do this one for a while. How's everything, how's everything been with you? Uh, good, yeah. Yeah, all is good. All right. So we were going to talk about James Joyce, uh, Ulysses, and we were going to talk about it, I think, for Bloomsday, but um, better late than never. So why don't we kick it off with the basic James Joyce, Ulysses? I haven't read this book since um, high school, actually, but I remember growing up with it my parents had it in the house and when we i was preparing for this podcast i actually got i still have the book that i grew up with i got it down and it turns out i have the first american printing and the hilarious thing about it is it was clearly only being sold in sex shops in america because the end of the book is filled with like hilarious uh, um like porn ads right. for, for things right. from yeah the, there's a yeah. There was a famous obscenity trial uh, in the States um, and the judge was tasked with uh, deciding whether or not it was pornographic because it, a lot of it is, is, is fairly indecipherable and, and, and there's, there's certainly nothing overtly pornographic in it, even though there is a lot of sexual references and um, sex is a big part of the book. So Ulysses is a tremendous book and there's so many angles to talk about from this, uh, particularly from the development of just the story of human consciousness, I think, but um, surprisingly enough, I cannot escape magic because I thought for once, I was really, one of the reasons I was excited about this podcast is it was like, yes, finally, I get to talk about something that is not related to magic. But lo and behold, that is not the case. I looked up Joyce and the Occult on JSTOR and there's an article, Craig Carver, James Joyce and the Theory of Magic. And here's what he had to say. The reader of Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake cannot help being amazed at the scope of Joyce's interest in the world around him. He was curious about virtually everything. He was in the best sense of the term liberal-minded and was as willing to, de uh, to delve into the world of Saker Massac as he was the world of St. John of the Cross. He was just as likely to discuss Blake or Aquinas as he was the concepts of parallax or of metempsychosis. His open 
curiosity for all facets of experience inevitably led him to explore the literature written on a very curious aspect of the human spirit, occultism. Joyce read or was familiar with not only many of the modern works on the occult, but also many of the older traditional works. He read, for example, the writings of Swedenborg and Paracelsus, the works of Blake, uh, the works of Blake, the prophecies of Joachim Abbas, the Kabbalistic works of Giordano Bruno, and perhaps of Pico della Mirandola. He had also pursued, perused the works of Hermes Trismegistos, Cornelius Agrippa, and other alchemists, such as Michael Sendivogius. As he says in his early essay, A Portrait of the Artist, all the hierarchs of initiation cast their spells upon him. Damn. So, we definitely don't have to dwell on this, but I, I definitely wanted to note this right <laughs> at the outset, because just because this is this podcast, and I thought Gosh, that, yeah. that would pique people's interest as we begin to talk about Joyce. And, and so, it's not totally out of left field, but... I will say that um, it particularly when it comes to the literary canon, there's like almost nobody you can find of significance who was not interested in in this material, oddly enough. So I'm perpetually amazed by that. But let's talk about Joyce. Why don't you, you want to just lead us off by, let's just go for the most obvious. Who was James Joyce and why should we still read him? So James Joyce was a Dubliner. Uh, he was born in 1882 into a middle-class family that, whose fortunes kept on declining uh, thanks to the, um, the his, his dad's drinking problem, basically. So they, they say they moved, I can't remember how many times, but 10 times or something, and every time it was to a smaller house. Uh, so, well, on the one hand, uh, he definitely is of the bourgeoisie and writes um, about the bourgeoisie. Uh, he, he seems to have um, a, a kind of wider empathetic um, understanding of people's uh, position, uh, their class position, their gender position, uh, their social position, their, their occupation and things like that, that I think comes from a kind of anxiety, uh, you know, about status that, that he would have felt. Um, so he's a Dubliner who writes about Dublin, but I think one of the most important things uh, to understand about Joyce and about his uh, his kind of aesthetic and his, his rubric when he was writing is that he wanted to reveal the universal through the particular. So while many people would... Uh, in trying to make a character identifiable or universally identifiable, they would make that character kind of bland so people could project their own um, characteristics onto that character. Joyce went the other way. Um, so Leopold Bloom, of course, the, the main character of Ulysses, is hyper-specific and he's unusual. Um, he's a Jew in Dublin and there weren't many Jews in Dublin at that time. Uh, he has peculiar tastes for offal. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's the scene that introduces him. He's, he's frying liver for his breakfast and it says it, the, our kidneys and it brought to his palate the tang of faintly scented urine and he enjoys this. You know, he has um, peculiar um sexual proclivities and lack of proclivities and he has um peculiar interests and uh you know peculiar background and Joyce thought that this was a kind of better way of revealing the universal and also his focus on Dublin as a city um he aims to 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 reveal the, the universal he's hyper specific about Dublin so the names of pubs the names of streets the names of um people even that were alive at that time he references and I think Joyce uh thought that there, you know, every single person has an identity, every single person has a history, every single person uh, has um, aspects and characteristics and is from a specific place. And so uh, he felt that 
by including that hyper specificity, it actually made the character more relatable than making a kind of bland character, if you get me. So even though the books are about Dublin, you know, we start off with um, collection of short stories, Dubliners, um, even though they're, they're about Dublin, I think they're, they're universally relatable and certainly they're meant to be universally relatable. And even though Bloom is this hyper-specific and unusual character, uh, he is um, very relatable. And to me, that's one of the, the great strengths of Ulysses is that it emphasizes the universality of humanity, you know? Yeah, and that is very much in line that is very hermetic in the sense of the the, the fundal the fundamental axiom of hermeticism is that the parts of you know all is contained within the part yes exactly what you're saying about how he wrote about dublin and things like that and then and and as blake put it you can grasp eternity in a grain of sand and that that right there i think is if you just start from that way of seeing the world you have the whole picture of hermeticism and magic and analogical thinking and seeing nature as a series of analogies so in that sense as you're expressing it um joyce very much is in line with that way of thinking and that's so fascinating um why is ulysses so critical particularly now and why is ulysses why does it stand out so much from his other works and and is read so much more yeah, I meant to say to you earlier, you know, we, we missed Bloomsday uh, to do this, but we didn't miss the centenary. So it still is um, the centenary year of Ulysses. It was published in 1922, Perfect. which is the same year the Irish state was founded um, after a period of uh, bloody warfare forced against the British and then um, leading us into to civil war. So um, for Ireland, of course, it's, it's of acute um, national significance. Uh, but again, I think it's of much more uh, universal um, interest. So I think Ulysses, like from a literary perspective, there's, there's another apocryphal saying that, that everybody's heard that Joyce said he had uh, written enough to keep the professors busy for hundreds of years. And, and that is true. It's meant to be an apocryphal uh, apocryphal saying, though. It's, it's, it's not true that he said that. But the, Ulysses is kind of like a puzzle, you know. Um, so... The, the meaning, people often talk about Ulysses being indecipherable and difficult to read and stuff like that, but the meaning is always there if you search for it. The meaning is contained within it. So it's not like, um, you know, I remember taking my little brother and sister to the Museum of Modern Art and, you know, there was some just like blob and it said on the sign that this represented some really complex thing, like, you know what I mean? And it seemed to me that the meaning was just arbitrarily tagged on there. And my little brother was just like, what the fuck is this shit, you know? Uh, so with, with Ulysses, there are various puzzles in the book, like, can you cross Dublin from canal to canal without passing a pub? And there's a definite answer to that. Uh, there's a puzzle oh, okay. like right. uh, a man in a Macintosh turns up at a funeral and you have to try and figure out who it is. The, um, what is the word known to all men is is a saying that, that comes up again. And... Um, the evidence suggests that that word, the evidence within the book itself, you know, suggests that that word is love because every human being is born um, in a state where they can't look after themselves. So they must know love um, to, to, to survive. So um, it's, it's a very complex literary work uh, and it bears reading and rereading. But I think the heart of its complexity uh, is 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 kind of simple. So there's, uh, you know, I think it was Derrida who said it's a machine for creating meaning. But I think Joyce came up with a formula. And when he had that formula, the book kind of wrote itself with all its puzzles and complexities. So the formula is basically uh, the story of Odysseus 
except set on a single day in Dublin. So Odysseus gets lost at sea for years and comes back and his wife has remained faithful. Leopold Bloom gets lost in Dublin for a single day and he comes back home and his wife has been unfaithful. Uh, so there's kind of an inversion there. But it is um, the, the, that story transplanted to Dublin on a single day, uh, June 16th, 1904, which is the day that Joyce uh, himself met Nora Barnacle, who was to become his wife. Um, and you can see some of Joyce, where he got, Joyce got some of his um, passion for puns and synchronicities because Joyce's dad, when he found out that he was dating a girl called Nora Barnacle, said, uh, she'll stick with you. <laughs> that's that's a that's a dad joke all right that's yeah, funny yeah yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm partial to that but i think you, you can you can see um so the, the structure of ulysses then uh you can see, like so joyce's dad was from cork city in ireland and joyce that joyce had a picture of cork city on the wall of a study in a frame made out of cork wood so Joyce kind of reveled in the idea of um, form matching content, and he applied that this to, to, to Ulysses. So when he wrote it, it has uh, several distinct chapters recalling episodes of um, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, uh, except of course set in Dublin on this on this one single day. But each one is written in a different style that corresponds to what's happening in that. Uh, episode. So, for example, uh, maybe the best way to, to try and understand what that means in practice is the Oxen of the Sun episode is set in a maternity hospital and it itself has nine different parts. Uh, each one is written in a different style of English going back to kind of um, Anglo-Saxon alliterative rhyme to Chaucerian Middle English uh, up to Victorian Gothic and then kind of descending into Cockney Roman slang and, and different forms of uh, demotic. And yeah, each one of those nine parts corresponds to one of the months of fetal development because it's huh. set, that scene is set in a maternity hospital. Um, so that kind of, I don't know if, if that kind of uh, illuminates what, what, what he was trying to do or whatever, but certainly if you think of that formula um, like an engine for de determining how we wrote the book, uh, I think it, it, it can be illuminating. So the, you, the whole book is in the, the, you said that's the structure for the entire book is the field development cycle? No, no, that's just that's just one chapter. Just the one chapter. That's just okay. One chapter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. One chapter where it's set in a maternity hospital, and so it, that chapter has nine parts, and it's written in a different um, style of English. If you just hold on, I'll, I'll get I'll just one second, and I'm going to get you an example from that sure. because it might make it more clear. Yeah. So um, here's here's an excerpt from that chapter. So they're sitting around uh, a table in the rec room, uh, a group of of medical students and doctors, and uh, you see if you can figure out what they're describing here, right? Okay. So, and full fair cheer and right was on the board, and no white could devise a fuller, nary richer. And there was a vat of silver that was moved by craft to open, in which lay strange fishes without heads. Though misbelieving men know that this be possible thing, without they see it, nevertheless they are so. And these fishes lie in an oily water brought there from Portugal land, because of the fatness that therein is like to the juices of the olive press. And also it was a marvel to see in that castle how by magic they make a compost out of fecund wheat kidneys out of Chaldee that by aid of certain angry spirits that they do in it to it swells up wondrously like to a vast mountain. Um, sorry for my elegant reading there. No, that was but, uh, great. Can, you, can you figure out what that means? Pre presumably, I'm guessing pregnancy or uh, something related to that. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. So then I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's a tin of sardines and bread. <laughs> okay. So uh, 
A vat of silver that was moved by craft to open in which lay strange fishes without heads, though misbelieving men know that this be possible thing, without they see it, nonetheless they are so. And these fishes lie in an oily water brought there from Portugal land because of the fatness that therein is like to the juices of the olive press. So then it says, uh, how by magic they make a compost of the fecund wheat kidneys out of chaldee that by aid of certain angry spirits, that's just yeast, they do in it, so <laughs> it swells up wondrously like to a vast mountain. So yeah, it's just a description Perfect. of uh, of uh, tin of sardines and bread, but written in the style in a in a kind of Middle English uh, style, you know, Chaucerian Middle English. Um, so yeah, you can see how the the, the lenses that he applies uh, to the everyday kind of thing makes it kind of magical. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and that that kind of seeing infinity within, you know, I just imagine like you know, it's it's imagining somebody kind of just like sitting there kind of trancing out looking at a, a tin of sardines and suddenly <laughs> seeing the whole of infinity uh, uh, opened up before them I mean that very much is the the kind of magical way of thinking and and also just phenomenal writing I mean it's so hard not to be you know there's there's not many writers but it's that are, are like this but when you read Joyce it's just like okay well this is of such a level that it's it's hard to imagine anyone ever maybe even approaching that again. I remember, um, I think Lou Reed says on one of his albums in the '90s, you know, you can't be Shakespeare and you can't be Joyce. So what's left? You know, it's like, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the, the famous quote from Samuel Beckett. Um, it, it's funny. I didn't know about that Lou Reed quote, but. Uh, there's a kind of quote that you see up on Instagram pages, inspirational kind of trite Instagram pages, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail better. Have you ever come across that? Um, uh, was that attributed to either Buddha or the Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> possibly, possibly, possibly both. Um, but that's a, that's a Samuel Beckett quote, and it's meant to be um, him kind of despairing at the the realizing that he couldn't exceed Joyce's artistic achievement. Yeah. So ever tried, ever failed, no matter try again, fail better was his kind of a uh, submission to the to the idea that he, he he wouldn't surpass it, but he could keep trying. But it's it, it, what a phenomenal book though. I mean, it's like you want the bar to be really, really high. And I remember when I read um when I read Ulysses in actually, you know, I was realizing when I was preparing for this um this interview I read Ulysses, I think, in high school, and the very the very famous quote, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to escape. I think it was actually that quote, which was one of the, f I think that might have actually been like the key, like just hearing that phrase was one of the things that just turned a lock in my brain and just kind of like derailed my life and <laughs> set me on the kind of path I later went on of, of it's, I mean, I think it's one of the most Gnostic statements ever made. I'm just, I, I remember seeing that and thinking, well, I mean, what else can you say? What else is actually worth doing, but then to get out of this, you know, machine that we're all in. So uh, Joyce, in a way, was like very, very formative on me in, in, in that way. I mean, in a lot of ways, but specifically that quote that is so famous. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's funny you should say that because I, I went and got a quote um, that I thought that you would like. And it's, uh, it's not from Ulysses. It's from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is uh, a kind of, um, you know, artistically autobiographical. It's um, a phenomenal book also. Book. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 
So it's it's very, it's very similar in spirit. Uh, oh, that's Dublin. Well, I'm going to read now um, to, to the quote you brought up, uh, of course, the famous uh, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. So this is a quote from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Uh, the soul is born, he said vaguely, first in those moments I told you of. It has a slow and dark birth, more mysterious than the birth of a body. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. Yeah, read that again. The soul is born, he said vaguely, first in those moments I told you of. It has a slow and dark birth, more mysterious than the birth of a body. When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just said read it again because there's nothing I can really add to that that would be a better put. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I like no. the way you said Gnostic because I think that's a good, um, it, you know, that applies definitely to that quote as well. You know what I mean? Trying to escape yes. these um, constrictive, uh, you know, materialistic um, uh, or, or, or sorry, products of the material world that are that are kind of imposed on us externally. Absolutely. And I, I think it's hard for any um, particularly intelligent young person to not feel like that as, as they enter, particularly as they enter, they be, begin to end their, as they go through adolescence and then kind of the, the shearing process of school. And then they, particularly when they go out into the workforce and are, are just, you know, immediately crushed on contact with, <laughs> with the world. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that kind of says it all right there as, in terms of the underlying, I mean, it is Gnostic in the true sense. And also that right there was my interest in finding a way to do that, which is why my life kind of went the way that it did. But I'm guessing when he says nets, I mean, there's a lot of implications there. I mean, he's saying specifically Ireland, but that is a, it has got to be a universal experience, but I'm guessing he's talking about Catholicism and the church to some extent there. And also it sounds like he's, he's referencing Irish nationalism. Um, so you could take it as a universal, universal statement, universal statement, but it sounds like there's some specific things he's targeting there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in that scene, he's being um, kind of berated by uh, a contemporary of his, for not being involved in the um, nationalist movement in Ireland at the time, which, you know, nationalism in Ireland has a kind of different uh, connotations mm. than nationalism in a lot of other countries because, uh, you know, it was a reaction to colonialism and stuff. It wasn't kind of chess beaten, um, you know, just a straight up chess beaten nationalism yeah. that you had, say, in, in England or whatever. Um, and there, there was a kind of identification as well with, with other colonial struggles and, and they in turn identified with, with, with Ireland's colonial struggle. But um, Joyce, I think um, it's not that he rejected, uh, you know, the desires for Irish um, independence um, outright. He just felt that as an artist, a commitment to some political goal or whatever, I think would have limited him in a way that um, he, he didn't want to be limited in, uh, let's say. So, you know, I, I think th there's an extent to which e even Marx would have agreed with him because Marx said that uh, poets cannot be held to the same standards as as mortal men, you know, when, when he, he was discussing some poet who had veered from the, the, the you know, the, 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 the doctrine or whatever. And Marx, you know, was famously dismissive of, of people who he didn't think were politically serious. But in the case of, of, of an artist, I think he, he was willing to make an exception. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think it should be read as as an outright, an outright rejection of politics per se. But um, certainly in terms of, of his artistic um, mission. But yeah, also I think so he recognized, 
I think he recognised as well something that a lot of people didn't and that a lot of people still haven't really fully come to terms with. And that's the fact of the the, the counter-revolution. You know, I think he probably saw the way it was going. And I mean, in Ireland, we got rid of the Brits, but we got the church. And, you know, it's 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 difficult to, to, to really um, weigh up how much things actually improved and how much they disimproved because uh, the Irish state proved to be, you know, a, a very oppressive state. And we've had um, 100 years of uh, alternate governments, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, that are fairly um, two indistinguishable kind of right wing, um, you know, Catholic nationalist parties that are, you know, kind of rapidly trying to, to rebrand themselves as, as 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 something different. But, but you know, um, uh, so so I think Joyce did recognize the limitations of, of, of nationalism and stuff like that. That's really interesting. And, and that kind of is the mark of a true artist or making that commitment or I mean, obviously, nobody can ever fully escape politics, but that is kind of the mark of a true artist or a mystic. And it is interesting that on the one hand, that really, really pisses a lot of people off. I mean, this is definitely a time when his contemporaries very much were taking sides, um, not just Ireland, but, you know, even within modernism, like Pound and, and Elliot and, and things like that, uh, even taking the side of fascism in, <laughs> in the case yeah. of Pound. But um but it's interesting that that although this really pisses a lot of people off that it seems like you know even in totalitarian countries there's a provision made for that in in the sense like even in the Soviet Union there was uh, the recognition that the proviso like the genius proviso for certain you know composers and people like Nijinsky mm-hmm. and things like this who are, they just said well you know like these are gen- these are just geniuses so you know what even though everyone's equal uh, in, in the system there, they actually do have genius and we should just kind of leave them be as long as they don't, um, attack the government. Um, so it's interesting that that really does transcend just about everything and that people want it to transcend everything and, and that it is universal. Um, but talking about Irish nationalism, I, or more specifically colonialism, uh, Joyce has been written, uh, Ulysses specifically, I was saying has been written about a lot as not an Irish nationalist work at all, but one that does address colonialism and nationalism a lot. And I mm. wonder if you want to talk about that in terms of his, you know, even like the, the colonization of language and things like that. Yeah, so that scene that I was telling you about in Portrait of the as a Young Man, where he's been berated for not getting involved in the, you know, kind of Irish nationalism, but it's also the, 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 um, the Celtic revival and stuff. So not going and learning Irish and Joyce chose uh, not to, to write in Irish, of course, at a time when um, the Irish language was, was being promoted as part of this uh, project to um, reinvigorate um, Irish, uh, you know, in, in the Irish culture in terms of uh, sport, in terms of uh, art, in terms of uh, language. And so Joyce says, uh, my ancestors threw off their language and allowed a handful of foreigners to subdue them. And, uh, you know, a typical kind of arrogance, he felt that he, he didn't owe anybody uh, anything. And so this kind of ties into what you were saying about genius as well, because on the one hand, you know, this is something I struggle with a little bit, because what I love about Ulysses is how humane it is and how it extends uh, the circle of empathy to everybody. And, you know, there's there's a, a moment in it where it flits from various different people in the city, uh, you know, into their kind of interior um, consciousness. And there's a, a young boy called Paddy Dignam and his father has died that day. 
or his, his, his father's funeral, you know, and he's struggling to come to terms with what that means, you know, and it's this kind of inconsequential character, but you get a glimpse into his uh, interior world and the magnitude of what he's suffering. And, um, you know, that that kind of meme that, you know, everybody has a struggle you don't know about Bitcoin or whatever, yeah. you know, that's kind of, that's kind of Ulysses, that's kind of the message I took from Ulysses anyway. But um, it's hard to reconcile that with Joyce's behavior personally. So you wonder, does he get the genius pass, you know, because um, he wrote Ulysses in exile and it is heavily focused on on Dublin in terms of detail and stuff like that. So when he was writing it, he had to um, refer to maps and refer to something mm. called Tom's Directory, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a list of debtors and stuff like this with street names and people who lived on those streets on it. Um, but he also asked relatives uh, details that he wanted to find out. So, uh, you know, his relatives are struggling in Ireland and he's living the life of a dilettante on the continent uh, and stuff. And he's he's sending them back. So I'm going to read you. This is a letter from Joyce to his aunt, uh, Mrs. Murray. And this is from uh, November 1921. So not long before he was, he was published. So, uh, you know, I think the aunt has been on to him about how they're struggling and there's not enough food and this kind of stuff. And this is the letter she gets then. Uh, Dear Aunt Josephine, thanks for the information. Two more questions. Is it possible for an ordinary person to climb over the railings of number seven Eccles Street, either from the path or the steps, lower himself from the lowest part of the railings till his feet are within two feet or three of the ground and drop unhurt? I saw it done myself, but by a man of rather athletic build. I require this information in detail in order to determine the wording of a paragraph. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, this is, I mean, this underlines one of the reasons why people are just so suspicious of writers and probably right, rightfully so in the sense that whenever you're interacting with writers, you can never truly tell if they're, you know, interested in you for you or if they're just kind of like observing and mining your human suffering for material. And um, that that's something that's always been very, very uncomfortable for me about uh, the dynamic of writing. And, and I think that, but I mean, I don't, I don't think that he's unique in that at all. I mean, I, I feel like probably most writers are the same. I mean, you can even look at somebody like Charles Dickens writing about the poor of London while, you know, like, and making tremendous amounts of money <laughs> off of it. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. But did he live, had he lived in, he must've lived in Dub Dublin prior to that, but he was just then living on the continent. Yeah, so so um, I suppose he had a kind of a personal psychological crisis and stuff, uh, you know, maybe pre uh, precipitated by um, kind of rumors that were circulated about his his uh, his his partner, um, Nora Barnacle, and stuff by by friends. I, I'm not too up on on Joyce's biography, um, but that's my understanding of of one of the possible reasons that he just had enough. And um, but also he felt that it was an oppressive place to try and publish. Um, art at that time, you know, the influence of the church uh, was had been increasing even prior to independence uh, after Catholic emancipation and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the one of the printers that he, he published, uh, I think it was Dubliners with, um, refused to give him back even the proofs mm. when they read it. You know, it was it was so scandalous to them. And it's it's hard to kind of understand the 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 level of um like like not even just 
state censorship or whatever, but just censoriousness, uh, you know, and kind of um, that 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 he 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 lived under. So one of the most um, controversial bits of of Ulysses is a scene where Leopold Bloom uh, goes to take a shy, you know, uh, shit mm-hmm. uh, in American um, parlance, and he is reading uh, a, a kind of. Uh, a, a little story in a newspaper and he holds in his shit to prolong his reading experience <laughs> and then releases it, you know, and this is described in great detail. Uh, and, you know, this was seen as as absolutely scandalous. But of course, Joyce felt that he had to include that bit. If he's including every detail of someone's day, um, which is what he wanted to do and a kind of, you know, encyclopedia, um, encyclopedia of, uh, you know, human experience, that has to be in there, doesn't it? You know, so um, I think Joyce left to escape uh, that kind of atmosphere of, of censoriousness. Yeah. And th- there's a certain there's a certain universal quality to that as well in the sense of, you know, in the, the sense of the prophet is never recognized in their own land. But I think that writers writing about particularly locations from afar is pretty common. And uh, you know, a, a you know, totally unrelated example would be James Elroy, who left LA in the I think in the seventies, moved to Colorado, and has only been writing about Los Angeles in the nineteen forties, more or less, for the you know his entire life. Um, yeah, and so I think that's actually fairly fairly common. And I, I and I just think it's probably hard to get objectivity on anything looking at it close up, let alone a, a whole city. So. So that's interesting. But I wanted to touch on what you're talking about of the interior world and the, the structure of Ulysses as a work about what it's actually like, perhaps the first book to really record what it's actually like to live in one in, in inside it, you know, what it's actually like, try to record the experience of a day and the internal stream of consciousness. And it would probably be I mean, this book is so different from what is normally considered stream of consciousness writing at the time, like Virginia Woolf or something like that. It's so much more exhaustive. And it made me think of when I was reconsidering that, I'm sure you're you're familiar with the literary critic Harold Bloom, who kind of had the theory that he wrote that book, The Invention of the or Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It's on my it's on my desk there. Yeah, got it. Yeah. So where where I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he basically says that the whole idea of a human being is kind of having their internal. Um, their own internal existence and struggles and and of being interesting in their own right is kind of an innovation of Shakespeare. And prior to that, it's just, you know, the context of, of religion. And I, I, you could look back maybe to things like even the Greek myths of, of as examples of, you know, talking about the internal world of human beings, but it's still personified as God. So Shakespeare mm-hmm. kind of at least in Harold Bloom's opinion, I think that's what he was saying is making human beings interesting for the first time. But Joyce takes it even further and just, you know, mines the entire or even perhaps records in detail the entire interior world of somebody within one day. Uh, and, and that's I think that's probably the first time that had fully been done to that extent. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think it might be helpful, um, you know, to, to, to discuss how Joyce tries to convey that interiority um, if we read uh, a little bit for you that, yeah. because there's a certain they call it a Bloomian style um, and so it's it's a kind of um, 
way Joyce writes to, to convey Bloom's interiority. Of course, it, it, you know, he has the interior um, of, of other characters as well, but Bloom is the, is, is, is the main character. So this is the scene I was telling you about, um, about uh, him going okay. to Jack's. Uh, Jack's, of course, is uh, the Hibernian English for, for toilet. Uh-huh. So um, I'll just read it, yeah? Yep. He kicked open the door of the Jack's. Better be careful not to get these trousers dirty for the funeral. He went in, bowing his head under the low lintel. Leaving the door ajar, amid the stench of mouldy lime wash and stale cobwebs, he undid his braces. Before sitting down, he peered through a chink up at the next door windows. The king was in his counting house. Nobody. A squat on the cook stool, he folded out his paper, turning its pages over on his bared knees. Something new and easy. No great hurry. Keep it a bit. Our prize tidbit, Matcham's Masterstroke, written by Mr. Philip Beaufoy, Playgoers Club, London. Payment at the rate of one guinea a column has been made to the writer. Three and a half, three pounds three, three pounds thirteen and six. Quietly he read, restraining himself the first column, and yielding but resisting, began the second. Midway, his last resistance yielding, he allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read, reading still patiently that slight constipation of yesterday quite gone. Hope it's not too big, bring on toils again. No, just right. So, ah, cost of one tabloid of cascara sagrada. Life might be so. It did not move or touch him, but it was something quick and neat. Print anything now. Silly season. So you can see there, there's a number of things going on. Uh, one of them being that it switches from third, third person omniscient to these kind of interjections um, of, of Bloom's own thoughts. Uh, so um, when he said, when it just goes, hope it's not too big, bring on piles again. You know, there's no, he hoped it wasn't too big. It's just hope it's not too big. So you get this direct kind of unmediated immersion in um, his consciousness. But at the same time, you have the, the, the third person omniscient there. And somehow it works, you know, somehow um, it's it's kind of a more immersive experience than if he tried to just, you know, transcribe someone's thought process. Mm. But I think this also might point to where Joyce himself failed and realised uh, that he failed. And that's in that, in Finnegan's Wake, uh, he writes Finnegan's Wake in a kind of um, uh, jumble of different languages and none. So, you know, languages that he makes up and, uh, you know, it's all kind of elusive. Uh, so elusive, A-double-L-U-S-I-V-E mm-hmm. and elusive in the, in the sense that, you know, E-L-U-S-I-V-E as well in that it's very hard to, to find definitive meaning in Finnegan's Wake. So whereas Ulysses is full of definitive meaning, you can figure out these puzzles. Who was the man in the Macintosh? Can you cross Dublin without passing the pub? In Finnegan's Wake, he kind of precludes definitive meaning and it's all kind of puns and connotation and a sense of something. And I think that's probably because of that quote that we talked about from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, where he says, language is one of the nets that is flung at the soul um, of a man when he's born into the world. And so mm. I think he recognised that there's it's it's kind of misleading to, to kind of... Uh, to, to, to kind of push the idea that language and thought are coterminous, which is what he kind of does. And that's an idea that's become very popular in academia subsequently. And that's the, the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis that language determines thought. And, uh, you know, people of different languages think in completely different ways that are kind of, they can't understand each other. And, you know, there is some truth to the idea that different languages do influence the way you think in certain ways. For example, how we divide the colour spectrum so that in Japan, uh, traffic lights that we would call 
you know, that we would expect the traffic light to be green, but in Japan it looks blue to us. But that's because they divide the color spectrum, you know, in in different parts. So their their idea of green encompasses shades that we would call blue. Um, but I don't think it's true that language determines thought, and I don't think it's true that we think solely in language or with language. And I think we all know this instinctively because we've all had the sensation of knowing what we wanted to say, but not being able to find. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. But also, uh, if somebody tells us a piece of gossip or an anecdote or something like that, we can tell somebody else about it. But we don't remember the exact sequence of words that that person used. In fact, it'll probably be impossible for us to to remember the exact sequence of words words that they used. So um, with it's, it's obvious then that we're storing something there that isn't language because we can't uh, extract the, the the language, let's say. So um, I think Joyce recognised that um, that there's something misleading uh, in representing uh, thought as language, let's say, and that's what led him to write Finnegan's Wake in this kind of um, indecipherable language of his own uh, that's, you know, it, it made that you can't uh, extract definitive meaning from. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, when the war broke out, he's supposed to have said, you know, oh no, uh, 1939, nobody's going to read my book. That's the year Finnegan's Wake was published. And of course, the, he he purposely made a, a book that's kind of unintelligible to, to the vast majority of people and that you can only kind of extract um, very vague and indefinitive meaning from anyway. So I think there was other reasons that people weren't going to read the book. But um, yeah, so I, I think Joyce recognised that, you know, it ultimately recognised that uh, language is a kind of translation of thought. And the theme of translation, uh, I think, is is a, a really interesting theme to pursue in, 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 in trying to understand Ulysses. And that goes right back to the very title. So... It's a retelling of the Greek myth of Odysseus set in Dublin in 1904, yet the title is not uh, Odysseus, it's Ulysses, which is the Roman version of the Greek myth. And so I think um, in in calling it Ulysses, he's recognising the fact that this is translation, that this uh, translation inevitably has um, kind of changes, alterations, maybe inaccuracies. And um, when people ask me um, how to get into Ulysses, I tell them to watch the, the film. So there's two mm. decent films. Uh, one is called Bloom, and that came out in um, the early noughties, I think. This is the one with and, Stephen uh, Ray. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and Stephen Ray Ray is brilliant as as Leopold Bloom, and, and of course uh, Angeline Ball is incredible as Molly. I think the best Molly must be the best Molly that's ever been performed. Um, and so there's another film that was made in the sixties as well. I think if you, it's it's probably better to watch um, both of them. You know, uh, Joyce uh, was an investor in the first cinema in Ireland, and um, yeah, so he recognised the 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 possibility for. Um, things to be translated not just between languages but between media uh, and you know when I was talking about how different episodes inflect the form of, of uh, different um, scenes in, in, in Ulysses depending on what's happening in it for example the, the scene set in a newspaper office has um, newspaper headlines interspersed throughout it and uh, you know there's a lot of that kind of t- things going on you know signage um, and, and stuff being related uh, within within Ulysses um, I'll, I'll read you a quote here by Marshall McLuhan yep. um, and I'm surprised that this quote isn't better known and isn't uh, discussed more because I think it's it's uh, um, really um, illuminating so the work of James Joyce exhibits a complex clairvoyance in these matters Joyce saw the parallels on one hand between the modern frontier of the verbal and the pictorial and, on the other, 
between the Homeric world, poised between the old sacral culture and the new profane or literate sensibility. Bloom, the newly detribalized Jew, is presented in modern Dublin, a slightly detribalized Irish world. Such a frontier is the modern world of the advertisement, congenial, therefore, to the transitional culture of Bloom. So Leopold Bloom is an advertising uh, salesman. That's uh, what he does for a living. And I think uh, Joyce kind of recognized, um, you know, again, as, as McLuhan says, a complex clairvoyance, uh, the, 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 the kind of... Um, the level uh, that advertising was 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 going to reach, but like as McLuhan points out, there it's a transitional world. So the Odyssey was, uh, you know, a lot of people say comes from the oral uh, tradition and then was was written down. And um, McLuhan is arguing here that Bloom is uh, at a frontier between. Um, the, the literate world and the pictorial, which is that's the, really the, interesting. The, world of the advertisement, yeah, that's really really interesting, and that, that's just so. It's always been so intuitively obvious to me that Ulysses marks just kind of like a phase shift in how people are thinking about themselves or culture, uh, just so obviously. But but the thing that struck me when you were saying this is I suddenly realized. You know, there are so many Hollywood movies that are based on the structure of the Odyssey as well, uh, mm. including such um, thing, including ones we could perhaps put on the same in the same category as Joyce, like the SpongeBob SquarePants movie and uh, Harold, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Uh, but there's <laughs> there's tons. I mean, let's see, like Apocalypse Now even is is based on on uh, the Odyssey. So. There is I, the Odyssey of all human stories. Definitely seems to be one of the ones that is just hard coded in there. It's a, you can't, like even if that had never been written, it seems like somebody would have to, and somebody would still have rewritten it from scratch almost. Yeah, there's a great book. I don't know if you've come across it by Christopher Brooker. And of course, this is similar to stuff that um, you know the, the hero with a thousand faces. That um, who wrote that again? That's uh, Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a book by Christopher Brooker called Just Seven Stories, and he argues that. Uh, there's basically seven stories. One is the the journey or the quest, you know. Uh, one is overcoming the monster. Uh, one is the 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 marriage plot, um, and so on. And that these form, uh, you know, the building blocks. Oh, I know for, what you're talking for, about for yeah. narrative culture. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because like ha having lived in 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 Hollywood for eleven years, um, th that th ev literally everyone in LA reads that stuff, and it it becomes. A self-fulfilling prophecy where everyone thinks that they have the code that there are only seven stories so they only write seven stories and this is one of the reasons why all all hollywood movies are so unbelievably formulaic yeah. because everyone yeah, but, well, is literally again, working out the same formula yeah again i, I would say that that uh, joyce and finnegan's wake escaped that you know and so um finnegan's wake is kind of a if there is a, a a narrative to be um extracted from it it's it's circular so the first sentence reads straight into the last sentence and joyce said that his ideal reader would just keep reading it forever yeah let's and talk about uh, yeah now i remember he he said he wanted it bound in a circle right with no mm. back or back or front is that yeah. yeah yeah um let's talk about finnegan's wake and and just go on go go on that tangent for a second Finnegan's Wake is the is the only Joyce book that I haven't fully read, um, and it's been it's one that I've been meaning to pick up again forever, uh, and and just lost track of it. But that is one of those works of of 
art that really does seem to break the frame of everything else and transcend uh you know, art in general. And there's not many other examples of that. Maybe the art of the fugue by Bach or something like that. Uh, it's, it's what everyone would wish to aspire to that level of originality, but it almost never actually occurs. But I think you could pretty much argue that it does with Finnegan's Wake. And that is a completely inscrutable book, at least to me. Um, but I wanted to ask you, like it, you were kind of getting at earlier that there was some big philosophical shift, not just in his approach to language, but maybe in other ways between Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. And it was written in a different time period. Uh, it was post-World War I. Um, what are your thoughts on that in general? Because Finnegan's Wake is a book that you could clearly point to and say, like, you know, in the truest sense, this is a truly occult book. Yeah, I suppose uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I'm sure you know there's there's people who would be better placed than me to point to Joyce's um, you know uh, philosophical development uh, after writing Ulysses. But I think um, the great Joyce and Professor Sam Sloat, uh, you know, who made the best point I've heard on this subject matter, and uh, he said, "What did people expect him to write? Uh, you know, Ulysses too. If you thought June 16th was great. Well, you hear about June 17th. Um, you know, after." Uh, having this uh, incredible artistic achievement, reaching the pinnacle uh, of um, you know literary capability, what was he going to do next? Except maybe go into the granular level and break down language itself. Um, I think it was the only um, you know field left open to him that he hadn't explored already. So there's a kind of natural progression there. I think within Joyce's work, um, you know. So yeah, to me. I don't know. I wouldn't read it in terms of, um, you know, it being necessarily a philosophical development. I think, hmm. you know, what I was saying earlier about perhaps recognizing him, you know, doing some introspection and saying, well, where did Ulysses fail? Um, and I think, you know, maybe in, in that sense that like it's it's very easy when, when, you, when you're reading Ulysses, you'll start thinking like Bloom and you'll notice yourself think like Bloom and start to verbalize uh, thoughts in your head that, you know, I don't think you would usually. And I think um, that's that's where Ulysses, you know, just misses the, the, or, you know, misleads, you know what I mean? Like in, in that our interior, I don't think our interior interior life is as neatly um, divided into language, you know, and Joyce does the thing of, of doing away with, with with pronouns and stuff to kind of convey the sense of interiority. Hmm. Um, and you find yourself thinking in this uh, style and that kind of signals to me that there's an inaccuracy there, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I, I don't know if Joyce did recognize that himself or, or, or not, but to, to me, um, I, you know, the departure that he went on when he then wrote Finnegan's Wake um, is so massive that I think that's a possibility, especially given his earlier statement about wanting to escape language as a net. And and escape history. I, I think that that, that yeah. clearly yeah. is. That, that's, a, that, that's a break, I think. Um, how was that received at the time? I mean, I know other than the, the and how was Ulysses received as well, other than the the famous obscenity trials? Um, so, you know, Virginia Woolf said Joyce was an undergraduate picking his pimples um, and stuff like this. And I think there's an element of truth in that even, you know, he, he is kind of um, the pedant's pedant, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's it's very kind of uh, uh, self-indulgently intellectual and self-indulgently um difficult sometimes for the sake of being difficult i think uh you know i think joyce could have achieved in ulysses 
what he wanted to achieve and made it easier to read in places, let's say. Um, you know, that's not to discourage anyone from reading it because um, it is very rewarding to read. And I think it should be read um, with a kind of a different eye than you'd read, uh, you know, a normal novel. Mm-hmm. And that is a kind of acceptance that you're going to guess a small percentage maybe of what's being conveyed to you. But it's such a delight when you do pick up some little thing that you think maybe no one has, has picked us up before um, that that's... Um, that's it's, it's it's worth reading even if you're you're not getting it all and even if you're zoning out sometimes yeah um, and just I'll, as a to interject as a note of encouragement in my experience the last hundred pages suddenly breaks into such like an unbelievable flow of language and 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 narrative and it just it picks you up the river at that point picks you up and and carries you that last hundred pages of the book is so beautiful and and yeah by that point yeah, easy think- to follow i think because you're used to it yeah, I think um, it does help if, if you watch the film, say, Bloom, or the, the film that was made in the 1960s, um, just so you get a sense of the characters and, and, and what's going on. Uh, or if you go to like some kind of stage production of it or, you know, some kind of, you know, th- th- there's often what people will will do scenes of it and stuff on Bloom's Day. Um, I don't know. In, in Dublin, they certainly do. I don't know how, uh, how, how, how easy it is for other people to get to, um, to kind of people enacting scenes from Ulysses but sometimes yeah, I don't know. Like, you know you can't get across Dublin without 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 it but um yeah there's there's certainly loads of stuff you can watch online and stuff like that to give you a key into it and I think that that really helps you know so I'd start with the film if 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 someone is trepidatious about it start with the film and then um and you know Ulysses can also be read as poetry like uh, Joyce wrote poems as well and that certainly comes across uh, in um his prose and it can just be read for sheer enjoyment of the language do you feel that Joyce came to any religious conclusions at all? That's one thing we didn't really touch on uh, is he was, you know, trained as a Jesuit. He was apparently very inspired by uh, Aquinas early on. He is famous for breaking with the church and kind of being an apostate, but maybe not. Maybe he never truly did. And, and I think some critics have said rather than breaking with the Catholic church, he kind of transcended it and became almost like a wandering bishop figure, uh, redefining it in his own way. Um, and it seems like there was a, there was a real journey there for him as well. I'm wondering if you want to touch on that. Yeah. So, um, let me just find this quote one second. I've got it here. So, uh, book Mulligan, um, refers to Stephen Deedless and Stephen Deedless is the, the Joyce character uh, in Ulysses. He says, you have the course of Jesuit strain in you, only it's injected the wrong way. Um, so I think that kind of inversion uh, is something Joyce is interested in. Of course, in, in Portrait of the Artist, he details uh, his, his, his struggles and his um, kind of break with the, with the Catholic Church uh, through sex. Basically, he um, had sex with a, a, a prostitute in Dublin's Monto Red Light District. And then he became very fervently religious, uh, you know, was going to da- daily communicant, going to mass every day and stuff like this. And then over time, the sexual desire kind of 
built and built and built up in him and he, he went again with a prostitute and I think after that he was like you know if God didn't want me to be this way he would have made me this way and that was the definitive break um, with religion then but he, he he was going to be a priest he was um, very religious and he went to a school in Dublin Belvedere run by the Jesuits and um, I think he won you know the essay writing competition in Belvedere every time he entered entered it and stuff and I think he was um, had a great affection uh, in some ways for uh, the Jesuits and and for religion and certainly it comes across like that in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man when he's having discussions with the priest but then there is a scene in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man where another priest is describing uh, hell to the, to, the, to the kids and he's saying if you imagine a, a metal ball the size of the sun and every million years a butterfly goes round it and brushes its wings off this ball um, you know after 10 million um, when this ball is the size of a marble you know this ball the size of the sun is worn down to the size of a marble just from the brushings of this butterfly's wings once every million years you'll have only begun your time in hell you know <laughs> um which is a fucking horrific thing oh, yeah, to, yeah. to tell children and you know we had a we had a, a, an education like that in the 80s okay. we were told things like this by priests uh, on retreats and stuff um we, you know we, we were made stand up at school uh, and asked on Monday morning if we'd been to mass and we were asked about the you know the sermon and, and stuff to figure out if we actually had been there or not and uh, my math fair play to her went in and gave the teacher hell for that saying you know it's, it's none of your business whether uh, my son goes to mass or not huh. um so so yeah i think it's 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 difficult to kind of to under to understand the extent to which ireland was a theocracy um mm. you know um, and prior to you know joyce, joyce of course only experiences prior to independence but I, I mean the way to think about it would be to think about iran after the iranian revolution Wow. Um, okay. You know, and I think okay. it's that kind of level of um, theocratic dominance, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I don't even really fully understand why um, the Catholic Church was 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 so was so powerful in Ireland. Um, you know, I, I, I don't really understand the reasons why, given how we rejected um, English rule and, and, and fought against it um how we so readily adopted uh, kind of rule from Rome. I mean, the, the Archbishop had a, a hotline to the Taoiseach's office. That's the prime minister um, the Archbishop you know and, and could call veto on, on on things like you know they could ban books and they could ban films and and stuff like this and um you know just immense power uh so um yeah wow yeah i think it was either timothy leary or Ter terence mckenna said you know uh once a catholic always a catholic if you have that early imprint it's just permanent yeah <laughs> no matter what you do yeah, you yeah. take as much acid yeah as you well want. The, the other side of it <laughs> The other side of it is that there's some Catholic concepts that I think um, we would do well to to kind of dwell on a little bit more, or, or not to throw out the, sure. the the baby with the dishwater, like forgiveness and redemption. You know, yeah. That's, um, that, so imagine the, imagine the, forgiveness in our current when redemption in yeah. our current world. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you could just go to confession, and that's it. You know, hey presto, you were fucking good as good as gold. Um, you know, and I, maybe that was that, that's you know, a encouraged. that's a concept that's due for a comeback i think honestly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that that's the funny thing i mean a lot of people who talk about um prison abolition and stuff like this yet they seem to 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 never want to forgive anybody for anything um right you know what i mean so there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there yeah that is mind. i i've had that thought about christianity many times um because i'm you know if i'm have any core trait it's being a contrarian and so being surrounded in uh, certainly in California and 
just the types of things that I write about by people who just fervently reject Christianity. My my initial response is 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 like, well, well, maybe I'll embrace it just to piss you all off. So, um, but I think that my observation, thinking about Christianity a lot, is basically just what you what you just said the the importance of forgiveness of understanding that without forgiving other people how are you going to ask for forgiveness i think it that seems like a pretty basic concept but this has obviously been totally lost um and people have made this comment across religions there was a very there's a very i always forget his name there's a very famous rabbi in london that made the same point where he said it's like we we live in a world where people have rejected forgiveness um and, and particularly with with online um rage mobs and that type of thing mm. and that's a and that that attitude combined with the permanence of the online world is is really um frightening and i don't want to get off on a, a tangent about that other than to say that we would do well to look at forgiveness again i think and a lot of the stuff that the church comes with the church and a lot of in a lot of ways the modern liberalism as a whole i mean like guardian style liberalism basically takes all of the worst aspects of christianity and none of the good ones <laughs> so it's it's kind of yeah. like it's kind of like this i this you get all the nosiness into other people's business, all of the judgment of other people, all of the, you know, fake um, kind of like savior complex stuff about having to enlighten or, or, or save other people in, in the developing world, for instance, with all the colonial aspects that comes with that, uh, the importance on, on fasting and in, in the sense of, environmentalism and things like this but yet there's no there's no option for redemption and it's like so there's no pressure release from that uh that circular nitpicking or whatever you want to call it yeah i, I, I can't really add much to that i just i'm, I'm in 100 agreement with you yeah there definitely yeah absolutely so i think that you know that that's probably one of the the there's a couple of things there i suppose with choice in in that he did take what was good and uh was take what works discard what doesn't as bruce lee said from uh, catholicism yeah. You know? okay um yeah uh but but also i think um you know the novel can be understood as a technology for extending the circle of empathy. Hmm. So for transporting you into the minds of other people with a different identity than yourself um, and allowing you to kind of realize that they have feelings and they have, um, you know, needs and and uh, desires and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, very much analogous to your own or very similar to your own, even if um, from an external uh, perspective, they seem very different. Um, and I think Joyce t takes that rubric to, 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 the, to the kind of extreme, you know what I mean? And places you into the mind of this very, very hyper-specific person, but that you really come to identify with. And I think that's a very powerful uh, idea and a very powerful um, thing to do. Uh, you know, so, so that kind of, um, uh, imprimatur to empathy, um, you know, within Ulysses and, and within the, the genre more generally. Um, you know, I think Ulysses is the ultimate novel. Um, yeah. you know, I think that's, yeah. that's something that's, that's really valuable, uh, about the novel and valuable about it being, 
um, something that we indulge in alone. So when we watch, uh, you know, some people say that the the HBO box sets like The Sopranos or The War or whatever, the new novel, I think there's ways in, in which that's true. Um, you know, they give space for character development and over a long period of time. And we, we watch them at our leisure. So we watch them when we want to. We don't have to tune in at a certain time or whatever. Um, but I think the, the, the solitary immersion in someone else's consciousness that the novel kind of encourages um, you know, is 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 also very important and something that makes that medium um, still relevant. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And, and that it's for that reason that writing of which Ulysses, I think I agree with you, is the ultimate example, at least of the novel. I can't think of anything. I mean, Gravity's Rainbow. I don't think so. I think U- Ulysses. Dublin def- Seven by Frankie Gaffney. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> quick plug. Um, yeah. Yeah. On Amazon. So, uh, but it, it, the, that's why I've always been interested in writing as the most pure in my, I mean, you could make the argument that music more so because it transmits emotion only, um, unless there's lyrics, but I think that that is what has always interested me about writing. And it is more interesting to me, like you could get the greatest special effects in the world. It still would not be able to approach the ability of just the written word to telepathically communicate. And at their best books are a form of telepathy. It's, it's you're beaming somebody else's thoughts in directly into your brain. And in an odd way, the closest medium I think is actually podcasting in the sense that you're getting other people's Mm. at least spoken thoughts directly in your, in your head. So, uh, which is one of the long form podcasting uh, like this, where it's kind of a stream of a conversation, which is one of the reasons why I think people like it so much. Um, but but for me, writing is and always will be the ultimate art form, and and Ulysses, I think at least currently the the ultimate expression, at least of, of that type of it. Um, so that's my five star review. But I, let me just ask you, maybe just to wrap up. Generally, for people in twenty, it's now been a hundred years since Ulysses. Why should people read it now? Why should people still read it? Uh, you know, I'm tempted to say um, f- for those kind of uh, uh, reasons of, in, you know, the, the fact that it's enlightening and stuff like this and maybe encourages encourages you to be um, a bit more um, understanding towards people or whatever, or uh, to be a bit more forgiving or sympathetic or whatever. Um, you know, and I think that 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 is a big part of it. But also, I think um, it, it is very relevant today in that, you know, like McLuhan said, it's about a transitional culture. So this culture that is um, the, the, the photograph is becoming more and more um, prevalent. Radio is, is, is coming in, Telegram, and all of these things are very referenced, uh, referenced. Joyce was an investor in the first cinema. And I think if Joyce was writing today, he'd be right, he'd be including text messages, he'd be including mm. uh, emails, he'd be including voice notes, you know, all of this sort of stuff in some kind of hypertext. Um, and he'd be working to the limits of the medium. And that's what um, that's what he did in with the tools available to him at the time. You know, like I said, there's kind of newspaper headlines in there. You know, there, there's um, references to, to advertisements, uh, business cards, you know, all of, all of this sort of stuff. And he's kind of it's kind of a literary collage of, of the kind of linguistic landscape that um, Bloom is, is living in. It's not just uh, his interior, if you get me. Uh, so I think there's um, lots of synchronicities with today in, in, in that respect uh, to, to understand um, how 
how the linguistic landscape we live in, and we're living at a time when the written word is more dominant than it ever has been in the history of humanity. Yeah, funnily enough. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't get people to answer the fucking phone anymore, can you? you know? <laughs> That's a uh, good point. I never thought yeah, about it that way. Yeah, so, so, um, you know, I think you can see um, in, in the time that he's writing about um, the kind of, the how would you describe it, the, the kind of um, the growth of the written word, uh, you know, because print was becoming ubiquitous and, and cheap comparatively. Um, and um, yeah, so I, so I think there's a kind of a, a kind of um, continuity there between that time and our time. And I think more so than, say, in the 1970s or in the 60s or the 50s, if you get me, because I think, you know, it was just at that moment, that transitional moment, and we're living through another transitional moment. So I think there's, there's really um, yeah, things there that make it certainly cogent uh, to today. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, I, I, I wonder if it would be accurate to say that there's an aspect to, uh, hopefully this isn't too reductive, but there's an aspect to Ulysses where, as cinema is happening, as these other mediums are beginning to coalesce, that he is demonstrating what only the written word can do. You know, it's like no other medium will ever be able to reproduce somebody's internal world in that same way. I wonder if there was an aspect of that to it. Yeah, not just the internal world. I think you make a very astute point there is that Joyce exploited the medium to the fullest. And when you look at a lot of books, particularly, um, you know, it surprises me latterly, but say um, Jane Austen, for example, is a brilliant mm. writer, writer I really admire. And, um, I've, you know, I've read all of her books and they bear returning to. But I think they would be very easily translated into audiobooks. Okay. Uh, Ulysses is not easily translated into audiobooks. Now it's 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 famous for audio versions that are read very well, and it um it it can be a real pleasure to to listen to an audio version. But uh, Beckett said of Finnegan's Wake, it is not only to be read, it is to be looked at and listened to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as true, maybe even more true of Ulysses. So while there are phonic elements in there, um, there's also a lot of elements that are purely visual, like the newspaper headlines that I mentioned, um, like, you know, business card, letters, uh, stuff like this that really only have their, their full impact um, when it's on the page. Even the episode that's written like a play script um, on the one hand, you can see it performed like a play or listen to it performed like a play, but I'm not sure that really captures what Joyce was getting at. Do you know what I mean? Like having yeah. it translated into a play script. Um, so, yeah, certainly I think um, he definitely, like you said, you, I think you put it very well there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's really interesting to highlight how important specifically the written word on the pages as well as opposed to an audio performance because we live in a time when you know obviously like audiobooks in a sense almost threaten to eclipse print and printed books altogether it's like everyone wants the audible version um you know i constantly get requests to do audio you know an audio version of my john d book and it's like it's to the point where like people won't sit down to read the book but they will listen to the whole audiobook and I, I that's not necessarily a negative thing mm. i think there's a lot of reasons for that one of the one of the ones is just people are so busy and they have so many responsibilities and they live such fast-paced lives that they can bring an audiobook with them while they're doing their daily chores and, and tasks whereas a, a book you have to give your undivided attention but an audiobook as much as i like the audio medium and the audiobooks are great and they they do things that the written, written word can't they're not as immersive and i think 
in thinking about it, the main reason is it doesn't go at the same speed as your actual thinking. Whereas with mm -hmm. a book, however, whatever your speed of actual reading or thinking yeah. is, that's the speed at which you're going, going yeah. to consume it at. So it's it perfectly yeah. matched to your own internal thinking. And you can't do that with an audiobook. I mean, they're they're too slow for me. I get really frustrated. I feel the same way with movies, actually. They're too slow for me because I want to I want to consume the experience at the speed that I read at. Not that it's super fast. It's just that it's matched to my brain. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, there's a there's a Jesuit uh, a theorist called Walter J. Ong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read I've read orality and liter literary. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he talks about how um, general literacy has kind of occluded our understanding of uh, language as occurring in two dis distinct forms. That is writing and speech, and writing being a technology. You know, like every human culture has language. Language is, you know, to to my mind, unequivocally what distinguishes humans from animals and what allows us to inhabit the whole world without much variation. Um, you know. Be, uh, between humans uh, because we have language and we have culture and we can uh, create technology to survive in all of these different places um, whereas animals need to to, to adapt you know um, so uh, the, the the latter uh, prevalence of, of writing and you know it's it's ubiquitousness in, in our society occludes us to the fact it's a technology that was uh, discovered in the, at a distinct period in time every human culture doesn't have writing um, every uh, human culture does have language and uh, so there, there, there are distinctions there and you, you can kind of see this like you know one of the um, the, the kind of uh, things that, that I always uh, find people are surprised by is when you tell them that there aren't any spaces between words when we speak. So there are spaces between clauses and there are spaces between sentences. Generally, when we speak, we pause. But if you listen to somebody speaking a language you don't understand on the radio, it's just a contiguous flow of babble. Uh, and this surprises people. And I think it's probably because of the spaces between words uh, and the spaces between words even are an invention much later than writing. It was Irish monks that first put spaces between words. So you can thank us for that. Nice. Um, and and that, that, you know, you can see within that one example, I think, how our understanding of writing influences our understanding of language um, and stuff like that and can be misleading. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I really, I made the point in the last course I did at, at Magic.me extensively about language. And I agree with you. You said earlier in the, in the podcast that you were kind of departing from Chomsky's ideas about, I, I think Chomsky, of, of language kind of determining consciousness. And I don't think that's the case either. But um, there is something about language where it, there's a bit of an optical illusion with language where yes, we can use it to express thoughts, but just because of its own grammar, it can easily, what's the way to put it? It can seem like it, well, the, 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 the easiest way of putting it is it is very easy to mistake language for being yourself. Like mm. as in the voice, the voice in your head that is constructing language, it is very easy to mistake that as being inherently you, but it's just something, it's one thing that's happening in your brain. And, but there's something about language, particularly the way that it's constructed with, um, you know, first, second, third person narrator, the way that words just string together, 
based on the grammar of whatever language you're using internally to represent your experience, that languages do have their own intelligence, almost like an artificial intelligence. There is a, whenever you begin to express something, there is a limited number of things that you can then express after that thought. Um, I don't know if I'm expressing myself very clearly now, but at the moment, but it's like language itself is kind of a pre-existing computer program, computer program or programming language that you're interacting with, but it has its own internal logic that you're inherently bound with, bound by just by using it. So it, it does constrain, constrict, and in a sense, overlay people's individuality, um, which is no problem as long as they don't do what basically everyone does, which is um, falsely identify with one's internal language as being themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you've, you've, you've raised some important points there. Um, probably important to just raise a distinction. So, so with Chomsky, it's interesting because um, I'd agree with Chomsky's theory of universal grammar. Um, that that would be very much my thinking that there there is a universal structure to language. It's the Sapper Whorf hypothesis, which which argues okay. that specific <laughs> different okay. languages um, determine our thought in different ways. Um, so I, I, I kind of okay, agree okay. with your kind of explanation of it there. Um, but I think that that's that's kind of an important uh, distinction if you get me. So yes. that I don't think that languages um, differ. To, to to the extent that people sometimes make out. And we, you know, we see this in Ireland a lot, I suppose, because the Irish language was so suppressed um, and it was banned and stuff like this. And we had a foreign language imposed upon us and stuff that people who are very passionate about the Irish language want to emphasize the uniqueness and the differences um in 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 language. And I can totally understand that. And of course, when they um mention specific aspects in which the Irish language differs, um, like for example, uh, there's an Irish phrase, a uh, Kurdish jokurum, uh, and that means uh, he's put. Literally, it means he's putting in on me. Tasha Kurdish jokurum, he's putting in on me. So it means uh, if somebody's annoying you, right? You say Tasha Kurdish jokurum. But so it, it it also has the inference of he's preventing you from doing what you want to do, even if that's just thinking or whatever. Do you know what mm, I mean? Because he's okay. putting in on you, like so. It it's like he's invading your space, and that can be metaphorical space. It, you know, he could be just shouting from a distance, but he's putting in on you. If you get me, and that's a phrase I always reach for. Uh, you know that that doesn't exist in English in the same way. But again, I think that can be overemphasized, and it can be emphasized in a way that kind of gives to a kind of pessimistic conclusion that we can't understand people from different language groups are people of different identities and I think um, I believe fully like Joyce in the universality of humanity that we all evolved the same way we all have fundamentally the same hopes desires and needs um, and I think that's a, a much more important uh, message than to emphasize um, our differences particularly yeah. at this historical moment yeah absolutely absolutely and and yeah there there is a phrase that people used in England at least when I lived there in the mid 2000s that they would call somebody a space invader like the video game, but it's like, you know, it's like they're, right. they're getting up in your space, which I yeah. thought was really funny. But yeah, that's yeah, an important, like that's it. a really important point to make as well, because we do live in the time of, you know, resurgent petty nationalism. And, uh, and, and that's, as you pointed out earlier, earlier in the podcast, that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. If it's like people, well, I guess I, let me just put it really reductively. Nationalism is great if it's, if it's, people expressing their own identity as separate from an, uh, an oppressor, but kind of shifty when it's an, ex it's an experience or it's an expression of being an oppressor. 
right? Nationalism is used yeah. as to oppress, not to restate the or, or re-emerge the identity of the oppressed people. But we do live it, and and language is obviously part of is a big part of that. And there's lots of examples of that even in the 20th century. For instance, the the, the recreation of Hebrew as a spoken language. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, there's a reference um, in um, Ulysses to. Uh, the Zionist project, um, Bloom sees a pamphlet, um, I think to, to buy, um, Clementine Groves in, in, uh, in Palestine. And, um, you know, he's, he's considering, uh, the, 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 the prospect of, um, of, you know, the, the, I suppose the, the Zionist movement was, um, present at that time, but also, uh, you know, the, the idea of a nation. Um, they Bloom kind of debates this with a with a you know real chest thumping Irish nationalist, and um, it it doesn't go well. You know, Bloom <laughs> says a nation is the the same uh, the same people in the same place, and then one of the lads goes, "Well, sure, I must be a, a nation. Then I've been living in the same place for twenty years or whatever." Um, yeah, so it's it, he kind of expo- <laughs> but in Bloom's naivety, kind of exposes how it's. It's a kind of a a, a trick, tricky idea to pin down what is a nation. Um, you know, it doesn't have a very cohesive or firm definition. And it's, again, it's something like I was talking about the distinction between speech and and writing. It's something that we we swim in all the time, but we don't often give it um, our attention or try and understand it uh, fully because it's so all pervasive. I suppose. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. It's one of these things that just breaks down under under analysis in the same way that that the idea of uh, racial identity does. It's, it's just particularly now that we have ge- so much genetic data. It's like you just look at anyone's genetics, and it's like they're a mix of things from all over the planet. Usually, mm. uh, so the idea that people are distinct have distinct um, either national or um, let me just put it this way: it's like it's it's a it's a political statement. If you look at it objectively, it's really hard to justify a lot of that stuff. Yeah, where should we leave this then? Um. I don't know. I don't think it would be too much of a spoiler to read out the last lines, would it? Sure. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to, you, you know, people can turn off now if they don't want to spoil, but I don't think it's very famous um, what, what it ends on. And this is very relevant to something we were just talking about because the final word of Ulysses is, is yes. And this caused a real problem for the, the when they were doing an Irish translation because in the Irish language there is no word yes. Um, Ireland typically in in Irish we typically repeat the verb so on uh, rev to v may you know where you I was or whatever. Um, so you know it, it's it's funny in his home country when when it was when he tried to when it, people tried to translate it, uh, it it caused those issues and immediately raised um, those subjects that he. Uh, tackles so determinedly in Ulysses. So the uh, final episode is from the point of view of Molly and she is recalling Bloom proposing to her. Uh, and it's written, some people say without punctuation, but there is punctuation. There's the spaces between words, which I mentioned earlier, which is a form of punctuation. And there's a, a full stop right in the center of it. Um, so I'll just read out the last little bit here. And the sea crimson sometimes like fire and the glorious sunsets and the fig trees in the Alameda gardens. Yes. And all the queer little streets and the pink and blue yellow houses and the rose gardens and the jessamine and geraniums and cactuses and Gibraltar as a girl where I was a flower of the mountain. Yes. When I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used or shall I wear a red 
yes, and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall. And I thought, well, as him, as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I yes to say yes, my mountain flower? And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so we could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, I will, yes. Beautiful. Uh, and should definitely put on trial, for, be, be, be put on trial for obscenity. Um, that was a great <laughs> reading. Where can people find out more about you and your, um, your work? Um, I'm, I'm kind of in on hiatus at the moment, you know, I'm not really doing anything. Um, the, the, my book is out of print and stuff. So, um, it's, it's kind of hard to find, but people can get in Ireland, they can get a copy out of the library. Uh, they might be able to come across a secondhand copy if they buy it somewhere, but, um, at some stage in the future, I'll be, um, I'll be putting out more, more stuff. So remember me and look me up <laughs> down the line, I suppose is the only, the only advice I, or the only plug I have to give. Uh, Instagram or webpage or anything like that? Nah, nothing really. Nothing really. Okay. Well, then people can hear you at this podcast. It was great to talk to you, Frankie. <laughs> Self-contained, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hope to talk to you, uh, talk again soon. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks a million. Bye. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I will see you at magic.me, the world's greatest school for magic meditation and mysticism. That's M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. I will see you in class.